Tonight, we're starting a brand new series of studies. We finished Joseph a couple weeks ago, and then Chuck filled in last week, which I certainly appreciate uh, him doing that as I was up uh, in Kansas City with my daughter. And, and tonight, we're going to start, um, uh, it won't take, I don't think it'll be a very long series, but we're going to start a study tonight on the books of First and Second Thessalonians, um, which is, they're, they're unique books. Uh, they're different than many others, uh, uh, other epistles, but we'll get into it uh, in the coming weeks. How many of you ever heard the, the statement, you won't learn unless you ask questions? It's true, and countless teachers and parents have explained that truth to children as they begin their educational experience, and, and, uh, and I've had teachers say there's no such thing as, as a dumb question. Um, I, however, I will say I have heard a few questions that made me question that particular statement. But uh, uh, those who desire to train and impart knowledge, they don't mind responding to questions uh, because questions help the, the teacher know what students are thinking, what they're learning. And those who don't verbalize their doubts or voice their concerns or seek to clarify what they've heard, often end up living with misunderstandings or they go the wrong way or they live in ignorance. And Paul was a, was a master teacher. He, he was a, uh, but he also, more than just a teacher, he also felt like a father to believers in the churches that he had planted uh, in, on his different missionary journeys. And, and in both roles, he eagerly welcomed students' questions and patiently responded However, the problem was when he would go to a church and plant a church, generally speaking, he just had a, a, a short amount of time there on that journey. And so he, he just had a limited amount of time in each location. So as a result, Paul could not cover every topic. He couldn't resolve every conflict. He couldn't answer every question. It was impossible in a short period of time. So what he did, and we're, we're, we're the beneficiaries of this, is he wrote letters to those churches. And, and every letter, each epistle had, it, had its own purpose. <coughs> it spoke to specific needs. Uh, it helps us, when we read the letters, it helps us kind of understand what was going on in the church and that sort of thing. Um, but, but every one of those things, as, as he was teaching them and he was answering their questions, not only were they learning, but the benefit for us is that now we read the letters and we also learn. And many times our questions are answers, answered as well. So these two epistles, First and Second Thessalonians, Paul wrote these epistles to the church in the city uh, of Thessalonica in order to answer their questions and also to command them, uh, or excuse me, to commend them in their uh, faith and their commitment to Christ. They had questions, a lot of them, because he really had a limited time with them. We'll see tonight. And they asked them, and, and as, you, as we read this, as we get into this study, uh, let's ask the Lord to help uh, to answer our questions as well. So, uh, so I want to start tonight, as we usually do when we do a new study, particularly if it's a, if it's a book study. We always do an introductory session, uh, foundation for our study. And I know what we're going to talk about tonight is not everybody's cup of tea, but it's, it is important. Uh, because we're going to be looking at some of the history and some of the things that, are, that led up to this point, the, what led Paul to write what he wrote, and those sort of things. And that's important because if we understand, well, let's put it this way. If somebody um, was reading a letter that another person wrote to you, 
it would be helpful if that person knew who you were to help them understand what the letter was talking about. Because if they understand you and they understand what you were going through at the time and what you were dealing with in your life, then the letter begins to make more sense to them. And that's, that's why this is important, because we understand the history, what got them to where they were, all the events that took place. Then when you read the letter, when you read the epistle, you begin to say, oh, okay, now I know why Paul said this. He was addressing this issue over here. And so that's why these are important, even though, uh, you know, we're, we're not going to, we're not going to have a lot of, we're not going to have really any verse by verse exposition tonight. It's going to be all background information for the most part. And so, but we need to understand the history of the church and the reasons why Paul wrote these epistles. Well, first of all, let's deal with the authorship. We, we know it was Paul. Uh, this, this particular uh, uh, letter, there's not really any dispute on that because the very first uh, verse of the letter identifies Paul's, Paul as the author. In fact, the very first sentence of the letter I've always thought that the way they wrote letters back in the, in those days made a lot more sense than what we do. Because uh, what do we do? We write a letter, we say, dear so-and-so. And then we write the letter, and you know, if it's a few pages, then at the end we say, sincerely, and we sign our name. Well, how many of you have ever gotten a letter, and, and the first thing you do is, if they didn't have their name on the envelope, what do you do? The first thing you do is you go to the end, you say, who wrote this? Well, that's not how they did it back then. They actually, when they write a letter, they would start off by saying, this is from Paul and I'm writing to whoever it is. And so it made, it makes a lot more sense in a lot of ways. But the very first line of the, of the, of the, of the epistle says, this letter is from Paul, Silas, and Timothy. Well, that's pretty clear who wrote that. So it's, it's all three of the names that are there. Uh, and, and Paul's traveling companion, Silas and Timothy are mentioned there. But it's clear as you read the, the epistles that, that Paul is, is, is very clearly the primary author because sometimes he says we, but very often uh, when the, the writer of the letter doesn't say we say this, but he would, he would use the pronoun, pronoun I, and it's used very often. For example, uh, 1 Thessalonians 3, 5 says, This is why, when I could bear it no longer, I sent Timothy to find out whether your faith was still strong. I was afraid that the tempter had gotten the best of you and that our work had been useless. So you see there, that's obviously Paul speaking. That's not Silas and Timothy together because that'd be Timothy saying, I sent myself. Uh, so, so it's very clearly Paul there. So we know he's the author. Timothy, you know, he, he was probably very involved in this. He was probably the one who wrote down the words as Paul dictated it. Silas was also... Uh, very interested in this letter and may have offered suggestions on what to say as he was assisting Paul in founding this, this church. But Paul was clearly the apostle. He was the one in charge. And so uh, at the end of this, uh, the first letter to the Thessalonians, Paul clearly takes ultimate responsibility for the context, uh, for the contents of the letters when he again used the pronoun I in his final statement because he said in 1 Thessalonians 5.27, I command you in the name of the Lord to read this letter to all the brothers and sisters. So Paul takes ownership. We know it's him. So let's look at Paul's story and the story leading into the story of the church of Thessalonica. Uh, just to make sure we're all on the same page. Well, ever since his dramatic conversion on the road to Damascus, Paul had been 
totally committed to Jesus and had taken every opportunity to proclaim him as Messiah. You know, I was thinking about that today, that, that moment on the road to Damascus, bright light, knocks him to the ground. He can't see, he's blind because of that, you know, and goes to the, on into Damascus. The Lord touches him, restores his sight, calls him to be a missionary. I'm just thinking to myself, you know, if you're like comparing testimonies, you'd hear Paul's and you'd say, never mind. <laughs> I'm just... I'm just not even going to tell you mine because I wasn't knocked to the ground by a light and blinded or any of that kind of stuff. But, but it was a pretty amazing moment. And in that blinding vision, Jesus had called Paul to be a missionary evangelist. Now, before his conversion, Paul's goal had been, had been to persecute Christians. His goal had been to destroy this church, this new movement uh, following Christ. And, and, but then since that life-changing moment on the road to Damascus, he focused on spreading the truth about Jesus. I mean, you talk about a turnaround. In fact, when you read the book of Acts, you discover that the disciples were afraid to accept him at first because, not just the disciples, but the Christians in Jerusalem, for example, they were afraid to accept him because all of a sudden this guy who's throwing them into prison and persecuting them and and he, he uh, stood over and, and authorized, in a sense, the stoning of Stephen. So he was there when Christians are being killed. And all of a sudden he says, oh, yeah, yeah, no, I'm a Christian now. Uh, let me in. Well, you know, the first thought is, right. You just want to get insider information, this kind of stuff. So it was such a, a huge change that it was even hard for the followers of Jesus to believe that was taking place. But then, during the next couple of decades, Paul traveled most of the Roman world, preaching to whomever would listen and establishing churches wherever he went in all the cities where he visited. Uh, his message, however, was not always accepted. In fact, it was, it was largely rejected in a lot of ways, uh, particularly by the Jewish people in the communities. The Jews opposed him in Damascus and in Jerusalem and really in just about every city and town where he visited. And this included the city of Th Thessalonica, where he's writing these letters. Uh, Paul's missionary journeys he, he began in Antioch, which is, a, which is a city that's in present-day Turkey. And his first journey he went on was in A.D. 49, and, and uh, uh, when, when believers there in Antioch commissioned him and another man named Barnabas, uh, to take the gospel to distant cities. And so the two of them set out immediately and they sailed to the island of Cyprus and they preached at, at, at Paphos and then sailed back to Asia Minor, which is also present-day Turkey, to evangelize the cities of Perga and Italia and Pisidian Antioch and, and uh, Iconium and Lystra and Derbe. And they established churches in all of those cities and then went back and told everybody what had happened on their missionary journey. Well, then a year later, in A.D. 50, Paul set out on his second missionary journey. Uh, and uh, and I, I think, you know, initially they were, he was probably going to be going and double-checking on those churches and that sort of thing. But this time, when he went to, out on this journey, the first time Barnabas had gone with him, and there was a young man named John Mark who had gone with him. But on, on, uh, early on in the journey, John Mark... Had, had left them and had gone back home. And after that, Paul was like, I don't trust this, this John Mark guy. And he didn't, want to, he didn't want him to go on the journey. But Barnabas, 
who his name is literally the son of encouragement. That's what Barnabas means. Um, he saw that there was still something in John Mark and he in insisted on taking him. So they decided, okay, it wasn't like they were angry at each other, but they decided, okay, Barnabas, if you want John Mark to go, you go with him. I'm going to get somebody else and I'll go and, and we'll just split up. We'll go different directions. That way we'll reach more people anyway. And so uh, this time, instead of going with Barnabas, Barnabas took John Mark uh, and they went to Cyprus. And then uh, in Barnabas's place, Paul chose a man named Silas. Um, also in some translations, some, it's also the same man that's listed as Silvanus, same name, same person. Uh, he chose Silas, who was a respected member of the church in Jerusalem to accompany him on his trip to the churches in Asia Minor. Well, on the way to Lystra, a uh, young Greek believer named Timothy joined Paul and Silas. Actually, his father was Greek, but his mother was Jewish. So uh, you, you could say he was Greek or Jewish, uh, depending on how you looked at it. But together, these three men traveled through Asia Minor and uh, they came to the city of Troas. Before that, they, Paul had planned on going further north and then back east in Asia, uh, what, the region, not, not Asia, the continent that we know, but the, but the region known as Asia in the Roman Empire, the province of Asia, uh, which had mostly in Turkey. Um, and, and he was going to go a certain direction, but, but we're told that the Holy Spirit prevented them from going. We don't know what that means or how he kept them from going, but, but they didn't go that way. And they finally come to the, to the city called Troas. And, uh, and in that city, God gave Paul a vision, a dream, where a man was beckoning to Paul and he was begging him to come to Macedonia. Now, I actually meant to put a map on the PowerPoint. I forgot to do that. Macedonia is what we would call northern Greece today. A big, uh, actually, the Roman province took in more than just northern Greece, but this is the area we're talking about. And so the man was telling him, beckoning him and begging him to come in his dream. And Paul realized that God's call was very, very clear. And so Paul, Silas and Timothy, uh, they left Troas and they, they boarded a ship and sailed across the choppy waters of the Aegean Sea to the prosperous towns of the Macedonians, including the seaport of Thessalonica. Now, Let's look at Thessalonica and what led, what happened leading up into the place, time where Paul went there. Uh, Thessalonica was the largest and most important city in the province of Macedonia, and it was also the capital of Macedonia. It, it was situated some 90 miles or so west of the city of Philippi. You remember the, you've read the, the book, the, uh, the epistle to the Philippians. They were the people in Philippi. And, and, uh, and it was 90 miles west of there on a road called the, the Via Ignatia, or, uh, which was one of the main Roman highways, east and west. It, it really connected Rome with the eastern part of its empire. Major travel and trade route. And it was this great Roman highway that connected Rome with its eastern provinces. And, and Thessalonica, Thessalonica also sat next to a, a good natural harbor at the head of a gulf called the Thermaic Gulf. And the reason it's called that, and the reason, well, we'll get into that. Um, uh, the, the, in addition to that, you also had, there were major north-south trade routes that passed through Thessalonica. 
uh, further enhancing its position as a wealthy co commercial center. And there's a man, uh, I have no idea who he was, I just read about him. His name was Miletius. Long ago he said, so long as nature does not change, Thessalonica will remain wealthy and fortunate. And to, to this day, this city still exists and is a flourishing center. It's a big city. Um, I, I read today that the Thessaloniki today, or some places, some maps call it Salonica, uh, but, but they, uh, uh, the region, the metro area, has over a million people. So it's still a thriving metropolis. And the city had a, a very long history. In the early days, um, it, it had been given the name Therma. Uh, and, and that's interesting because, as you can probably figure out, therma has to do with heat, right? Thermometer, thermal, that sort of thing. Well, the reason is because the settlement that was called therma was right next to some hot springs. So, you know, we got hot springs, Arkansas. They had hot springs, Macedonia. And there was a little, little settlement called therma. But in 315 B.C., a man named Cassander, who was a military commander of Alexander the Great, uh, he, he founded the city Thessalonica, founded the city, and he named it after his wife, who was Thessalonike, uh, which is the, who was, happened to be the half-sister of Alexander the Great. And Alexander the Great, if you don't know, his empire was, it was centered there in Macedonia. That's where he was from. So now it's possible when he formed this new city that he renamed the old city of Therma, but that's probably not happened, probably not uh, what happened because we have one ancient writer that actually mentions both of the cities as existing at the same time. But what probably happened is that Thessalonica being right there on the, on the uh, uh, Gulf of Th the Thermaic Gulf uh, and uh, having a great natural harbor, it probably just, uh, just, it became increasingly prosperous and then eventually grew and grew until it swallowed up the old settlement. So when the Romans then eventually conquered Greece and Macedonia, which is, you know, northern Greece, they recognized the importance of the city by making it the capital of one of the four parts into which they divided up Macedonia. So when, Roman, when the Romans conquered the region, they took the area of Macedonia and cut it up into four different parts um, like there's one part that was called Achaia. You might read about that in the New Testament. Uh, there, there were four different places, but then eventually later on, they altered their system and they combined all four, all four of those into one single province called Macedonia and they made Thessalonica the capital of the whole, of the whole province. Now, as the capital of the province and enjoyed numerous civic and commercial privileges, including, very interestingly, the right to mint its own coins. Uh, in 41 BC, uh, and remember the later time gets in BC, the smaller the number gets. In 41 BC, uh, Octavian and, and Mark Anthony were rewarded the city for supporting them in the Battle of Philippi by making them a free city. Now, I'll give you a little bit, I'm not gonna go into a lot of history there, but this was, this was actually in the second civil war, this was a civil war that was taking place between Octavian and Anthony, Antony, uh, and he was fighting Brutus and Cassius, who were the people who assassinated Julius Caesar. 
And so there's this war going on. Who is going to be in, in, in control? Octavian and Anthony won the, the, that battle, the Battle of Philippi. That was the decisive battle. Later on, Octavian ended up having a war with Antony, and, you know, when, because he was like, uh, tried to team up with, with Cleopatra and then tried to overcome it, and then they lost. And, and so eventually Octavian became the all-powerful one, which later on the Senate rewarded him for all of that uh, by, naming his, get, by giving him another name, the name of Augustus, uh, which had more to do with the uh, reverence of being august, revered, that sort of thing. Uh, So anyway, that's just a little bit of world history. And then I I know that enjoying history makes me a geek, but that's okay. I married a beautiful woman, so I win. (laughs) So, so, um, uh, but anyway, as a result of being made a free city, which gave them a lot of privileges, like, uh, like uh, they, they, uh, for example, uh, uh, privileges when it came to taxes, but it also meant, meant that they could, uh, they could elect their own rulers, their, their own local rulers. And there was a group of five or six men known as politarchs who, who ruled over that city. And, and as a result, ruled over, really had sway over the whole province. And during Augustus's reign, Thessalonica was the most populous town in Macedonia. Traders and merchants and Roman officials and centurions walked the streets. Ships from throughout the Roman Empire, all of, from all over the world, filled its harbor. And, and while there was no doubt many, many Romans in the city, the city still remained basically a Greek city, but included among the many extraneous elements in the population was a strong Jewish community. The the Jews of Thessalonica had a synagogue. So we know it was a strong, large community because in Philippi, which was east of there, they didn't have a synagogue. So that meant that they didn't have as many Jews living there. They only had what was called a prosuke, uh, as close as I can get to pronouncing it right, which which the word literally means to pray to. So it, it probably means an open air place where they were they would meet for prayer. But uh, thus, as we look at the city, then we see that it had everything that we would expect to attract Paul from what we know of his missionary methods. Because we look at Paul and his pattern was go to these, to go to these major cities that had a lot of influence because he knew travelers would come in and go out and it would be serve as a hub for the gospel to spread throughout the world. So it's not surprising at all that he made his way there soon after coming to Macedonia. In Thessalonica, Paul and his associates preached the gospel courageously just as they had been commissioned to do. Um, as I said, they had a, Thessalonica had a large Jewish community and they had a synagogue. And we know that Paul uh, customarily began his ministry in, in every city, in the synagogue or wherever the Jews met, because he always went to the Jew first. Um, in, uh, in Thessalonica, which by the way, just to remind you, when he arrived in Thessalonica, Paul was probably not in very good shape, physically speaking, because he went there from Philippi. Does anybody remember what happened to Paul and Silas in Philippi? He was beaten and put in stocks and put in the prison. And at midnight, they sang praises and the earthquake came and all of that stuff happened. And so this is right after that. So listen, if you've been beaten, 
Um, you, you probably, you know, he, he, he's probably still pretty sore, pretty ginger as he comes to Thessalonica. And, and even after all of that, he just says, hey, we're here to preach the gospel. Let's go to the synagogue. And he preached it fearlessly. It's incredible to me that all that, that, he, that he did. So he goes to Thessalonica. And while he's there, Paul went to, the, we're told this in, in Acts uh, 17, that, uh, that he went there and he went to the synagogue for three Sabbath days in a row. And he taught in the synagogue. So he's there three weeks. Now, here's what we know. We, while we know that he taught in the synagogue for three consecutive sab- Sabbaths, there's still some question as to uh, how long he actually stayed in Thessalonica overall. The impression that you get when you read Acts 17 is that, that it was at the end of this period of three Sabbaths in a row that the riot that, were, that, were, that, were, that you read about in Thessalonica took place. And that, and that riot ended Paul's activities in Thessalonica. But in 1 Thessalonians 2, 7 and through 11, we read that Paul worked hard at manual work. And that may well, you know, indicate a longer period. Um, and, and also the reference in Philippians 4, 16 to the gifts sent by the Philippian church while Paul was at Thessalonica. Um, and, and the usual interpretation, many people interpret the verse in Philippians 4.16 is that they sent gifts twice. That's not necessarily the case there. It could be translated a couple, couple ways. But if it was the case, it's not probable that it would have happened uh, in a period covered by three Sabbaths. Although it's still, even that is possible. Uh, and, and, and again, that also is amazing to me after what happened in Philippi that the Philippian church, as poor as they were, were already sending him uh, gifts to help him. But... Uh, uh, there are commentators who think that the three Sabbaths refer specifically to the period of Paul's activities in the synagogue and that after that he continued his mission preaching elsewhere. And there are some that say he may have been there as long as six months. The truth is we just don't know. We can't say with any certainty how long he's been there. He could have been there six months, but everything that we read about, everything that we, we read there could have certainly happened in a shorter period of time. And it may have been as little as a month because you had a few days before the first Sabbath and a few days after the third Sabbath. And then you got somewhere close to a month anyway. So uh, anyway, let's move on. As Paul taught about Jesus in the synagogue, he emphasized Jesus's suffering and his resurrection and his identity as the Messiah. And as he preached, we're told that some believed. Among those who believed was a man named Jason who offered his home to the missionaries, and another man named Aristarchus, who later became a traveling companion for Paul. And we're also told that a number of God-fearing Greeks, now what is that? A God-fearing Greek is not just like uh, a generic term. What that means is those, are, those were people who, who were tired of the polytheistic way of life, and, that, and they were fed up with that. They said, this is leading nowhere. And they began to follow the God of Israel, but they hadn't actually converted to Judaism by being circumcised. So they're, they're observing monotheism. They're observing uh, Judaism without going all the way and making that uh, very, very uh, difficult uh, decision and commitment. And so there were some of those that had been attending the synagogue. And now they said, hey, th- 
this bears witness with us. We believe you, Paul. We believe in Jesus. But we're also told that some prominent women of Thessalonica were also persuaded. Now, I'm not, I, don't, I won't go into it, but uh, it's very interesting because we know in much of the ancient world, women were, uh, were generally powerless, often even looked down on. But in Thessalonica, uh, the women actually had a, a special place. They had, they had a significant amount of influence in the city. So when it says that uh, prominent women of Thessalonica believed, that is a significant thing. And while these converts from the synagogue formed the nucleus of the new congregation, we also know that a, that a substantially larger number of converts came to faith directly from paganism. As we're told in 1 Thessalonians 1.9, you can look it up. It says they turned to God from idols. So we know that nobody that was in the synagogue was worshiping idols. So those that it refers to, that he writes that says they turned to God from idols, those were people outside of the synagogue. They were not God-fearing Greek. These were people outside the synagogue in the city. Uh, I mean, think about it. If Paul, we know that he worked while he was there, and we know he was a tent maker, um, and uh, he comes into town. We have no reason to believe that he was a man of means, and so he needs to make some money right away when he gets there. He sets up his workshop and, uh, and he worked, as he said in chapter 2, verse 9, he, he worked night and day, he said. And that place alone, doing his business, think about this, because there's implications for us in our everyday lives. As he went out about his business, that workshop would have been a key place of outreach. He would have told everybody he could who came into that workshop about the Jesus he served. And it also eventually became a, a place of discipleship as well. In addition to that, the private homes of converts such as Jason uh, would also have provided a setting for evangelism and instruction. But as a result of all this, a, a new predominantly Gentile congregation came into, into existence. But that's where things took a south turn. They, things went south from, from there. Because almost immediately, those who accepted the gospel encountered opposition and hostility from those who were not persuaded by the preaching of Paul. And in fact, uh, you know, I mean, they stirred up other people, the Jewish people, the Jewish leaders, the, the leaders of the synagogue. I mean, think about it. This is what's happening in their minds. They are jealous of Paul's success uh, because, I mean, they've been there and they have a certain number of converts. And all of a sudden he comes in and everybody's saying, I believe what Paul's preaching. But on, on top of that, in their minds, this guy, we don't know who he is. He comes in preaching this, this message about this Jesus we don't know anything about. And he's stealing the most prominent members of our congregation. That's how they would have seen it. He's pulling these, hey, I mean, these are the ones that support us. <laughs> they're, they're the ones that are doing this and he's pulling them out. So in order to stop him, what they did was they rounded up some rough characters in the marketplace. I actually love the way the King James Version describes it. Very colorful, very colorful the way King James. I love this ver verbiage. It says that they, that they rounded up certain, certain lewd fellows of the baser sort. 
<laughs> I just love that. I love that. And these guys started a riot in the city. The mob gets together and they broke into Jason's house looking for Paul and Silas. When they couldn't find them, they just said, well, let's take Jason instead. And they took him and they drag him before the city officials and they accuse Jason of housing uh, preachers. And the, the accusation is one. Here's the thing. What they do, and this still happens today, they'll take uh, an element of truth and twist it and blow it up and make it sound different and way worse. So what they did was they said, this guy it's, we couldn't find the preachers, but this guy is housing these preachers in his house. And they have been asserting that Jesus, instead of Caesar, was king. Well, yeah, that is what Paul was preaching with Jesus as king. But it, he was not preaching a message to say, hey, let's overthrow Caesar and follow Jesus. See, so they took an element of truth, twisted it, made it sound different, and they accused them of treason. That was a serious charge. And that was a very big deal. The, the city leaders are going to pay really close attention to that because they get a lot of favors and a lot of privileges from being a free city. If there's an uprising, uprising in the free city, guess who's going to lose all of those things? So they're, they're taking this very seriously. This is a very serious charge. And, and so anyway, uh, we're, we're told that they, they, uh, they basically it makes it sound like they, they put up some security, like some bond or something, and, and, and apparently made them promise that, that they would, wouldn't, you know, they get rid of Paul and Silas or whatever. But given the instability in, in Thessalonica, the believers decided to send Paul and Silas to, to a city nearby, just a little bit further west and a little bit north called Berea. And, and now that Paul left unwillingly and sooner than he intended is clear from 1 Thessalonians 2.17 because in that verse he describes himself as having been torn away from his new friends and fellow believers. He, he well knew the kind of treatment that they were going to have to put up with. He knew what was coming for them. He knew the persecution and he felt very deeply for them as a result of that. And the sudden departure of the missionaries no doubt had a dramatic and shocking impact on the congregation, which unexpectedly found itself all alone and facing persecution and trials that severely tested their faith and perseverance. And, uh, and as a result, this very short period of time, um, they haven't had time to learn a whole lot either, have they? So there's a lot of questions but Paul, nevertheless, instead of with all this going on, he didn't want to leave, but he had no option but to leave. So he headed west to Berea. Well, Paul's opponents in Thessalonica were not so easily deterred. And uh, so when they found out that, he, that they had uh, sneaked out of town and gone to Berea, they followed Paul and Silas to Berea and making a lot longer story shorter. But they stirred up a riot against them there in Berea as well. And once again, Paul had to flee. This time he went to Athens, which would have been out, out of their reach, out of uh, any, nothing they could do to him in Athens. But it was in Athens where Paul was rejected by most of his audience. And some even mocked his message, particularly when they talked, when he got to the preaching part uh, and talked about the resurrection. That's when they started mocking him, saying, raised from the dead, you're crazy. And they started mocking him, although we're told that a few were persuaded and became believers. And then while he was there in Athens, Silas and Timothy eventually caught up 
with him and, and joined him in Athens. And in 1 Thessalonians 2, 17 through 3, chapter 3, verse 5, it gives us a glimpse of the emotional turmoil Paul and his companions experienced following their expulsion from Thessalonica. In response to these events, and you, as you can imagine, there were, there were two concerns that, that seemed to have been uppermost in Paul's mind. First one, I think you can really understand this very easily. Paul was deeply concerned that this young congregation might collapse in the face of hostile external pressures. He had not had time to disciple them fully. Are they going to make it? Even though he had warned them that persecution would come, we'll see that in the letter. You'll see that he says, I told you this is coming. But, but we know, how many of you know, it is one thing to, to deal with persecution and pressure and, and hostility in theory, but it's quite another thing to confront them in reality. It's one thing to hear it's coming. It's another thing to have to deal with it when it happens. Well, Paul, apparently not sure that the new congregation was sufficiently instructed to deal with the, the difficulties and the challenges and the persecution facing them, in, in chapter 3, verse 5, actually admits to being afraid, which makes me feel better, you know, Anybody here ever been afraid? Anybody here ever had somebody try to shame you for being afraid? Why don't you have faith? Well, you know what? Paul was afraid. I'm, I feel uh, I'm okay. Uh, but he admits to being afraid that these new converts might be persuaded to abandon their commitment to Christ, thereby wiping out all the time and effort he, Silas, and Timothy had invested. Second concern that was in his mind, and this one... We need to understand the, what was happening culturally a little bit to get this. And that is that Paul was concerned that his behavior, the, the events of what had taken place and that of his companions might be misunderstood or, or actually more likely misrepresented in a way that would uh, call into question the, the validity and the integrity of the gospel itself. Here's, here's why that's the case. Uh, religious charlatans and frauds were a dime a dozen in the ancient world. Frankly, <laughs> there's still a dime a dozen in today's world, so nothing has really changed. But, uh, but uh, uh, here, knowing that that was the case, that these people would come in and they would preach some religion and they were doing it all for financial gain. And then they saw the way that Paul and Silas slipped out of town in the middle of the night. It, that would have made it really easy to just sort of pigeonhole them as just one more pair of ripoff artists that are out to scam people. I mean, they came in here preaching three weeks ago, trouble stirs up and then they're gone. And Paul's afraid that they're going to, that the people, the enemies of the gospel are going to twist that to say, see, when they were there, the ones that actually made it where they had to leave, but, but he was afraid that that was going to be twisted and, and as a result, it would, it, the gospel would have uh, uh, a pall cast upon, upon it. I mean, what would the leading citizens say to their wives who, who had joined this new and sus suspect society? And I can picture them in their mind, in my mind, hearing, the, I can hear them saying it. A fine lot these Jewish spellbinders are. They come here and persuade you to join their following. But as soon as trouble blows up, off they go and leave all the dupes to face the music. 
Well, from there, it was a very short step to the conclusion that their message was no more truthful than they were, and thus the people might reject it along with them. That was Paul's second great fear. Um, as a result of this, the missionaries' first impulse was to return to Thessalonica as soon as possible, which is, again, amazing to me. Because every, every, it's like there's another city. I can't remember which one it was off the top of my head now. There's a city where Paul was literally stoned. They took him outside the city, stoned him. They left him for dead. He, he either died, either wasn't dead and he revived or, or he died and the Lord raised him from the dead. But, but he gets up from being stoned. What, you know what it says? He went back into the city. I don't know about you, but if I'm getting, if I'm getting, you know, killed or somebody's trying to kill me in the city, it, it takes a lot of guts to get up and go back in the city. And here he is, you know, with all this going on in Thessalonica, knowing that these people are out for blood. And there he's like, we got to get back there. We got to get back there. And they tried to, do, to go back there. Uh, in Paul's case, we're told that he tried repeatedly to go back, but for unspecified reasons, which Paul, in chapter 2, verse 18, actually attributed to the working of Satan, it proved to be impossible. He couldn't get back in. So he was frustrated and he was anxious to learn what was happening in Thessalonica. So Paul decided to send Timothy back in his place in order to strengthen and encourage them to find out what's going on, see if, this, if, there's, if the church is surviving. He did that. He sent Timothy back into Thessalonica while they were in Athens, where, where they, they had arrived by way of Berea. After a brief time in Athens, while Timothy was in Thessalonica, Paul then moved on to Corinth, another city in, in, on the Greek peninsula. And he probably arrived there in the late summer of A.D. 50, where in, in that's where, in collaboration with Aquila and Priscilla, he began to evangelize that city. While in Corinth, Paul found a receptive climate, and he ministered there for about a year and a half. Paul's stay in Corinth, this is interesting, this helps us date a lot of these things because we can, we can date his time in the city of Corinth with some level of precision because of something, a, a document called the Delphi Inscription, which was a collection of nine fragments of a letter written by the Roman Emperor Claudius. It was dated A.D. 52. Uh, the inscription names Gallio as the proconsul of Achaia, and a proconsul we know would rule for one year, beginning in July. Therefore, Gallio ruled from A.D. 51 to A.D. 52. And during his ministry in Corinth, uh, as we see in Acts chapter 18, Paul actually appeared before Gallio to defend himself against certain charges. So that tells us the time frame that he was there in Corinth where all of this was taking place. So this... This occurred toward the end of Paul's 18-month stay in the city. Uh, uh, beginning in A.D. 50, Paul's ministry in Corinth lasted to A.D. 51. So it was during this time of ministry that Timothy returned from Thessalonica with a favorable report on the Thessalonian believers, and he also came back with the questions that they had. While in general, Paul was thrilled at the progress made by the church in Thessalonica, the report showed that there were certain things that were wrong and there were certain difficulties that they were facing that he needed to address. And so in response to these things, Paul dictated the, the letter, the first epistle to the Thessalonians. 
Um, and Paul, in doing this, he wanted to strengthen the Thessalonian believers of their faith, and he wanted to assure them of Christ's return. First uh, Thessalonians is really primarily a letter of praise and thanksgiving for what God was doing in their lives. Uh, Paul, in the letter, rejoiced over the Thessalonians' progress in the Christian faith. Timothy had given Paul an encouraging report on these believers. Their faith in Christ had remained strong, even though he had very little time to disciple them. And although severely tested, they had withstood the persecution. They had not given up, had not given in. Having accepted Paul's message with great joy, they had been eagerly looking forward to Christ's return and all of these things. That eager response was a clear sign that the Holy Spirit had been working in their hearts. And that's really one of the real keys of it all is that it wasn't really up to Paul to make sure the church survived because the church belonged to Jesus and the Holy Spirit was the one who was growing these, these believers. And this letter celebrates the great news. As part of his instruction, Paul discussed the return of Christ for the church, uh, something that we in our modern terminology would refer to as the, rap the rapture. Uh, when, when presenting the gospel, Paul had told them that Jesus was coming back. And apparently, many Thessalonians were, uh, were confused about the return of Christ. Uh, uh, and, and, and they were confused about the fate of believers that had died. Um, they were like, because, because Paul, when he teach, what, I, what he believed was the, that Jesus could return at any moment. We still believe that. And, and so now they believed... And then suddenly some of their, and this was very early, I'm going to get to that, but this is very early in the history of the church. Now somebody dies and they're like, oh no, does that mean they miss out? So there was a lot of confusion there. And Paul wrote to reassure them that all believers, both living and dead, would share in the joy of Christ's return. And he further explained that Christ's return would come suddenly so they should be prepared. And eventually, uh, uh, evidently also, in addition to that, another thing that had happened because of the misunderstanding of the return of Christ was that some had just stopped working and they were just mooching off of everybody else because they thought Christ would, Christ would be returning at any moment. So they were like, why go to work? Jesus is coming. And so it was creating issues there. So Paul re re redirected, and that was, you know, that was out of enthusiasm. They were excited about it. They're like, yeah. So they weren't just trying to come up with an ex excuse to be lazy. They were like, Jesus is coming. Let's, we'll be ready. Let's go. He's coming. I believe it could be any time. So why should I bother going to work? I'm just going to wait for Jesus. So they had this enthusiasm, but Paul redirected the enthusiasm of these young believers by outlining the proper way to wait for their Savior's return. And he told them to stay alert, five, chapter 5, verse 6. He told them to continue to work. There, there's a great old King James phrase that you've probably heard where, uh, where we're told that to occupy until he comes. That word occupy literally means keep working. And then the third thing was he told them to encourage each other, build each other up while you're waiting. Paul also took time to defend his ministry because, as he feared, some had accused him and his co-workers of preaching for money and preaching for fame. And Paul vigorously denied this and set forth evidence to the contrary. We're going to get into all the details of all these things in our study. Uh, and the letter explains uh, exactly how the believers could endure persecution and opposition. This is 
I think more important, becoming more important for us in the American church because we're, we're, listen, we're, we're, I'm just here to tell you, I believe with all my heart, we're going to face more and more opposition. Um, the, there, there's, the world is helping to do away with gray area. You know, there's, there's no middle ground anymore. It's, and people are becoming, you're either a follower of Christ or you're, or people are becoming more and more anti-Christ, anti-Christian. And so hearing what Paul has to say to these believers who were in the midst of a culture who despised them and persecuted them, I think is going to be very important for us to learn these things. What did he tell him? He told them to pray for each other the same way he was praying for them. He told them to rejoice in each other's victory, just as he was rejoicing with them. He, they were to encourage each other to holy living because they were living in a culture that was very evil, very pagan, um, and uh, very lascivious. And he said, you need to encourage each other to live a holy life, just as he had been encouraging. And most of all, they were to seek, the, the, seek strength from the Lord, from the one who actually could preserve them until Christ uh, would return. So what was the message? We'll close with this. The, 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 the main themes are four of them, I believe. First of all is persecution. Paul's associates had been hounded. They had been finally driven out of Thessalonica during the short visit to that city. And then the new Christians Paul left behind were being persecuted because of their faith in Christ. So he addresses that issue. What's the importance for us today? Well, we need to remember that believers in any age can expect to be persecuted. As I say, you can expect, I'm not, I'm not saying physical persecution, but I believe in the coming days and months and years as a follower of Christ, you can expect more and more opposition uh, and, and, in that sense. Uh, so we need to, we just don't be surprised by that. And, and, and then, Believers need to stand firm in their faith in the midst of these, of these trials, being strengthened by the Holy Spirit who helps us remain strong. He, the message, he also talks about his own ministry. Uh, as I said, you know, some in Thessalonica were suggesting that Paul and his associates were preaching from selfish motives. Well, Paul denied these charges by reminding them uh, of, of his ministry among them and throughout the area. That's really powerful because uh, Paul could point to and say, hey, you know, that's just, he didn't just say, that's just not true. He, he could say, you saw how I lived. You saw my actions. You saw what I did when I was there. You know, I was not doing this for money or for fame. That's a huge thing for us. That's a great, powerful lesson for us today. In that, in that we have to understand that our lives either confirm or deny the truth that we speak. And so we have to keep that in mind. Um, it speaks of hope. Hope. Paul encouraged the Thessalonian Christians by reminding them that one day all believers, both living and dead, will be, reunite, be united with Christ. In fact, I titled this, I, I really looked uh, far high and low to, to try to find a good title for the, for the series, and I, I titled Holiness, Hostility, and Hope. Because that's really the, the, the theme of it. Paul talks about living a holy life in the midst of persecution, and, 
and so you got the holiness, you got the hostility against the gospel, but in the middle of all of that, we have hope. And, and the importance for us is that all who believe with Christ in Christ will be will live with him forever. Whether alive, whether dead, makes no difference. No matter how bad the situation, no matter how bleak the outlook, we can take heart knowing that our future is secure in Christ. And then the last thing really related to that is just about being prepared for the return of Christ. No one knows the time of Christ's return. It'll come suddenly. Uh, the Bible talks about when, when people least expect it. But, but knowing that He could come at any time reminds us, this gets to the holiness part. It reminds us that we should live a holy life because we don't know when He's coming. We should be ever watchful for His return. We should not be neglecting our daily responsibilities. Let's not take for granted that we have another day or another week or another month to tell somebody about Jesus, but we should always be working and living to please the Lord. Because the gospel is not only about what we believe, but it's also about how we live. And the Holy Spirit helps us to be faithful to Christ, giving us strength to resist temptation. So let's just, you know, part of the message, and this is what we're closed with, is that is to live as though you expect Christ's return at any time. You know, um, when I was a kid, I think that was something that was brought up far more often in the church than what it is nowadays. And I think we lose something there. I understand because there, there's a little bit of a pushback on it because back in the day, you know, sometimes pulpits would use it as a stick to beat people into submission and say, you know, Jesus is coming, you know, do what I told you, you know, whatever. But, you know, without, without using it as a bludgeon, I think we need to constantly remind ourselves, Jesus is coming. He, he could come tomorrow. And, and I need to be, make sure that I'm living in a way that honors Him. I don't want to be ashamed in the, on that day. You know, I want to, I want to make sure I'm living the way I, uh, that I should and honoring Him in everything I do, knowing I'm not going to be perfect. Anybody here perfect? Let me see your hand. Uh, okay, we, one little hand, but she, I know she's a joker. So, um, But uh, let's just make sure we don't get caught unprepared. Let's live our lives with a purpose. Amen. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your word. And I, I know, Lord, that tonight was light on scripture, I guess, and heavy on history. And maybe that's not everybody's cup of tea, but Lord... I think there's still lessons in this because in learning the history, we discover that maybe we have a lot more with the Thessalonian church than what we thought we did. That we live in the midst of a, of a, a dark nation, a dark society, a pagan culture. And you've called us to live a certain way and to live a holy life in the midst of a hostile environment, living today but looking for tomorrow with a hope so lord i just pray you'd help us to do that and help us to live every day even tomorrow as we wake go to bed tonight as we wake up in the morning remind us lord this could be the day and help us to live every day of our lives with that thought in our mind that this could be the day and we give you thanks in jesus name we pray amen